You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. And tonight we're looking at chapters 40 and 41. You'll find this on page 445 of the Pew Bible. What I'm going to do, for the sake of time, we're not going to read all two chapters. We are going to read selections, chapter 40, verses 6 through 18, chapters 41, verse 1, and then 15 through 34. 40 and 41 in the book of Job. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? 15. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. He breathes, his breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. 
Well, the Lord answered out of the whirlwind in chapter 38, and it was terrifying. You remember how God reviewed with a panoramic view of the wonders of his creation. He did not answer Job's questions, but he simply stressed his own sovereignty. As the psalmist says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable, infinite. So compared to God, who is Job? Is he a competent judge of providence? We should ask ourselves that question. Are we competent judges of what God does in history? If we cannot comprehend his creation, how can we comprehend the intricacies of providence? God alone is infinite. And God alone is eternal. And he only fully knows all things. And it is the height of arrogance for creatures to charge God with wrong. The atheist who accuses him of injustice is simply a condemned fool. The person who murmurs and complains daily about events in life is equally foolish. Do we not confess that God is sovereign? Do we not believe that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass? Well, then why do we mutter and grouse when things don't go our way? I point the finger at myself. Subconsciously, we think that we can instruct God on how to run the universe. And what's more, as we found last time, God has what we call proprietary rights over everything in the universe. He is the great creator, after all, the master architect and the sovereign maker of everything, and it all belongs to him. And as the proprietor, he has the right to do as he pleases with what belongs to him. Job was well aware of this principle, and that explains his initial response. When he lost everything, including his ten children, this is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he did not charge God with wrong. Because God can do what he wants. We may not like it. It may seem cruel. Oftentimes it is very confusing. But as one with absolute sovereignty and proprietary rights, he can do as he pleases. And this would worry me. I would be scared if I didn't believe that he is also absolutely good. He's not unjust, he's not unkind or cruel or harsh or in any way arbitrary. His reign is imbued with infinite love and divine compassion. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so the Lord God is perfectly just and he renders to every being his due. And God's first challenge, as we found, deeply humbled Job so that he was silenced. It was repentance unto life. He turned from any kind of iniquity toward Christ yet to come. Yes, the Messiah was still a long way off, but Job trusted in the promise. That explains his fidelity. And yet God was not done with his servant. There was more for him to learn. And so today the Lord issues a second challenge that is even more sobering than the first. 
In our consideration of this book, we've heard some of the complaints of Job. And through his sufferings, he's questioned the way that God governed the world. For example, in chapter 21, he wondered out loud about the prosperity of the wicked. I struggle with that, and perhaps you do too. Chapter 21, verse 7, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? So once again, God answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he said, dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. In other words, Job, do you have the same courage and confidence now as you did before? Are you really in a position to call into question my providence? I am the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And thus began a second round of a profoundly difficult cross-examination. Job had been deeply humbled by the first round, but he had not been humbled enough. Every proud soul, we're taught, must be humbled either by repentance or by ruin. And rest assured, God is not wasteful. This was absolutely necessary in the life experience of Job. In chapter 23, verse 10, Job said, He knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And we'll see that to be fulfilled. But for now, it's difficult. You see, God has revealed himself as a God of wisdom and power and justice. The beauty and the diversity and the complexity of nature reveals his wisdom. Look around us. The vast assortment of creatures, including the behemoth and the leviathan, show his power. And the character and the conduct of God himself proves that he's perfectly just. And therefore, it is absurd for Job even to question the integrity of God's justice. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job has repented, and now he sees far more clearly the ludicrousness of his questioning. You remember that when King David finally turned from his own sin, he acknowledged the same thing. He said, and I quote, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He confessed his wickedness. He owned his sin. He acknowledged God and they're both Job and David. We were ignorant and proud who were tempted to charge him with injustice. You see, Job cannot compete with the Lord in terms of majesty and power. He does not have an arm like God. He cannot thunder like him. God can adorn himself with majesty and dignity and clothe himself with glory and splendor. Who is Job that he would demand answers from the Lord of hosts? Job is no more able to judge God's providence than he is able to control the world that they looked at. And the point seems to be that Job should trust God more consistently. He's wiser, stronger, more majestic and splendid than any human being. And justice must be left to him and we need not question his methods because he is good. He does good, regardless of what it might look like from our level. All of our questions will not be answered on this side of heaven. 
but we know that they have a purpose. So we who complain, I think, should take note of God's perfection and sovereignty. Is he not capable of running the universe according to wisdom? We are far too impatient with the ways by which he accomplishes his purpose. For reasons known only to him, he endures with patience vessels that are made for destruction. And he works everything together for the good of his chosen people, including Ukraine, Uvalde, Texas, all sorts of tragedies. And so at this point, God highlights to the the first of two creatures or monsters, as it might be, Behemoth is the fiercest of land animals, and Leviathan is the most terrifying of sea creatures. Behemoth was made just like he made Job, and the animal far exceeds any man in both size and strength. Very imposing. And various interpretations have been rendered with regard to what kind of animal this is. Some claim it was a bull. Others think it was a hippo. Still others think it's the elephant. The point is... The great size and strength of this beast is far beyond that of any man. And after a detailed description of some of the attributes, the Lord says this, He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? I think the idea behind introducing this mammoth beast is to humble Job because God made this animal. It's a beast fearful and threatening to mankind. And whatever size and strength it has, God was the one who gave it. He made this beast on the same day as that on which he formed mankind. Who can compare with the Lord? He's the creator of great and small. And so he addresses Job. Job, I made the great behemoth as well as you. How can you question me? Just as we cannot control the hippo or of whatever it was, so we cannot control suffering. God has his secret things into which it would be wrong for us to probe. Things that were revealed deserve careful study, but the secret things belong to him. So in chapter 41, he goes on to highlight the second of two creatures. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? And the description of this latter beast is even more impressive than the former. It too far exceeds mankind in size and strength and ferocity. It's very fearful. And something of a debate has raged, whether it's a whale or a crocodile, but neither one is a creature with which Job or any human being wants to wrestle. It's true, with some technology, man can tame even these beasts today, but a simple comparison between man and beast shows the disparity. The Lord created this mammoth creature, so who are we to contend with him? It's a formidable beast. His breath and his looks strike terror into the heart, and he can easily manhandle the human, but he's no match for God. And at first glance, I think these are simple descriptions of two monstrous creatures. The hippopotamus, perhaps, on land, and the crocodile, maybe, in the sea. But then verse 12. 
Verse 12 of chapter 41, God goes beyond the ordinary and he seems to describe what we call a dragon. The creature's back has rows of shields so near that no air can penetrate. And he talks about flaming torches coming out of his mouth and smoke from his nostrils and his breath kindling coals. That's no ordinary creature, at least as far as we know. His heart is hard as stone. Spears and javelins have no effect. All the weapons used against him are as nothing to his strength. So what are we to make of this? Does it simply highlight God's sovereignty as we've been saying over and over again? Why would, we, why would he describe what we believe to be a mythical creature to prove a point? Well, I believe what God is doing here is using figurative language to describe spiritual realities. <clears throat> In the beginning of the book of Job, the spirit drew back the curtain, as it were, to the heavenly realm. And we watched as the sons of God came before the Lord and Satan came with them. And the devil's challenge to the efficacy of God's grace was striking. And we were able to observe the Lord's interaction with this monster the devil. And that dialogue led to the catastrophic sufferings that were experienced by Job. And then after chapter 2, Satan disappears from the story. What happens to him? Are we left in the book of Job without any resolution concerning the nemesis? Does the book conclude without dealing with the devil himself? I think not. I believe these chapters are a way of wrapping up those loose ends. There's two clues. The first clue is found at the very end of chapter 41. Verse 34 says this, He is king over all the sons of pride. The whole argument concludes with that comprehensive statement. And the devil is the one who rules over the dark kingdom that's filled with the sons of pride. In Ezekiel 28, the Bible describes the haughtiness of the prince of Tyre, and the description seems to morph into a portrayal of the devil's own fall. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed guardian cherub, and I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And here it is. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. Satan was an angel that in pride rose up in rebellion against God. And he rules over the sons of pride. And I believe he's represented by the monster Leviathan. But there's another clue, and it's found in God's vivid description of the dragon. As far as we know, dragons are fictional creatures, fire-breathing animals. And they are symbolic of evil and chaotic forces that are in opposition to God. You know this. They're formidable creatures, monsters that strike terror into human beings. And in Scripture, that image of the dragon is used to portray the devil himself. Revelation 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So John makes this unmistakable connection between the dragon and the devil. And what a striking symbol it is of the supreme deceiver and the archenemy of God's children. You see, the dragon stands as an emblem of the strong and savage power of the hellish one. The devil is an invisible being able to assault both unseen and unsuspected, and he seeks to hinder the gospel, to snatch the sown seed, and to choke out the good seed. And in the sixth petition, we're taught to say this, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He is a fearful and formidable adversary of the saints. And there is no hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In fact, the Apostle John reveals the ultimate defeat and punishment of Satan when he writes, The devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus spoke of the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that to which he was referring is what is revealed at the end of the book of Revelation. Satan is the one for whom the lake of fire was created, and he will feel its heat. And it will be a dreadful place of intense suffering, of everlasting agony. Medieval theology always portrayed Satan as a dark prince that tormented souls. And that's true. But he himself will be in the flames, and he'll be forever tormented himself. So let's rejoice over the defeat of Satan, for it will mean Christ's triumph is complete. And I believe that's the thing to which these two chapters in the book of Job are pointing. Through the victory of Jesus, we shall be victorious and will crush Satan under our feet. And though we're opposed by enemies and afflicted by trials, we will ultimately conquer the great enemy of our souls and our salvation will be completely overthrown. And the final battle will end in a swift and decisive of final victory for Christ and his bride. Awaiting us in heaven, even now, are the crown of life and the throne of glory. Not that we deserve it, but Jesus does. And by his merit, we will be saved. In Revelation 19, they sing, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So let's take to heart God's final speech here in the book of Job, and let's learn to appreciate his sovereignty. It is one of the most important lessons often repeated in the book of Job. He is sovereign. He reigns. Things may be confusing. Events may be puzzling. But God is seated on the throne, and he preserves and he governs all of his creatures. Job was dizzy after that panoramic view of creation. But how about this one of the spiritual realm? He was utterly and completely powerless against the schemes of the devil. But God's 
speech reminded him, and it reminds us, of his sovereignty over evil. He can turn evil into good. Life in a fallen world is confusing, but trust in a sovereign God brings peace. And even the wise person can't reconcile all the seeming incongruities of providence. We must at last acquiesce in the sovereignty and the dominion of our Lord. Let's acknowledge the divine wisdom that works everything for good. There are questions, I know, for which in this life no answers are forthcoming. There are problems, I know, which human logic and reason cannot possibly solve. But there is a living and true God whom to know through Jesus is eternal life. And knowing him is enough. He knows the answers. He can solve the problems. And if in Christ you know him, you're freed from worrying about any of them. He has it all under control. He knows the end from the beginning. So don't be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May each one of us be enabled to do that very thing. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.